Attorney, Fox News legal analyst, and two-time New York Times best-selling author. This is The Brief with Greg Jarrett. Experts say that China is hoarding a massive amount of food. They will soon have over half the world's wheat. What does this mean for you and me? Two words, food shortages. That's why you should stock up on the best-selling Four Patriots Survival Food. Create your own stockpile by using the code GREG, G-R-E-G-G. Four Patriots Survival Food is hand-packed in the USA with different delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, and their five-star reviews on the website rave about the flavor and taste. Just go to fourpatriots.com and use the code G-R-E-G-G to get 10% off your first purchase of Four Patriots Survival Food. That's fourpatriots.com. Use the code GREG, G-R-E-G-G. Joe Biden has corrupted our system of justice. He's turned it into a pathetic laughingstock. On that basis alone, Americans should boot the president from office in the next election. The president's lackey, Merrick Garland, the attorney general, has disgraced his high position by targeting his boss's chief political opponent, Donald Trump, with two specious federal indictments while at the same time protecting the president, who clearly aided and abetted his son's foreign influence peddling schemes. The Biden family got filthy rich by selling out America to its adversaries. At the center of it all are Joe Biden's lies. You'd need a calculator to keep track of them all. Recent testimony by Hunter Biden's business partner demolished Joe's repeated claims, oh, I I knew nothing about my son's business, had no involvement in it. That's what he said over and over again. Devin Archer confirmed that Hunter was selling access to his father and promises of influence. Read the transcript. Don't believe for one moment the mainstream media's spin meant to cover up the criminality. Naturally, Archer tried to minimize it all by saying, oh, you know, we were just selling the Biden brand. That's a clever feint. Don't be fooled. Branding is a marketing strategy. After all, brands sell something. Nike is a well-established brand with their swoosh and other marketing ideas, but they sell something sports equipment and sports apparel and shoes. Jeep has a well-known brand. They sell vehicles. What were the Bidens selling? Policy influence in exchange for tens of millions of dollars. Hunter would put then-Vice President Joe Biden on the telephone to help close the deals. The Burisma scam was their most brazen. Archer admitted to Congress that Hunter was hired at the Ukrainian energy company for the sole purpose of ending the government's corruption probe, which threatened to shutter its operations. The chief prosecutor, Victor Shokin, had already seized some of the assets of the CEO, Mykola Soloshevsky. In an email dated November 2nd, 2015, a top Burisma executive implored Hunter 
to wield his influence to, quote, close down the criminal investigation. Thereafter, what did Hunter do? He flew to Dubai to meet personally with a very desperate Zolashevsky, who promptly demanded, get your dad on the telephone. Well, he did. And when Joe answered, the men then stepped outside of the room so that Archer would not be privy to that conversation. But what happened next tells the story. Joe Biden hops aboard Air Force Two headed to Kiev and conveyed his infamous extortion demand to the government that Shokin be fired or the U.S. would withhold a billion dollars in financial aid as a penalty. Within hours, the prosecutor was canned and the probe into Burisma suddenly vanished overnight. Mission accomplished. The company got what it paid for in millions of dollars, and the cash continued to flow into Biden bank accounts. Later, Joe bragged about it on camera, his arrogance and stupidity he just couldn't help. In his testimony, Archer agreed that it raised serious alarm bells for influence peddling. He really said that. He admitted they were influence peddling. Is that a crime? Absolutely. It's called in the criminal codes bribery and conspiracy. But it's also a crime under the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act for a public official to exploit his or her office for financial profit. To prosecute and convict, it is not necessary under the law to show that Joe Biden himself ever received a nickel. Enriching your family constitutes criminality. Archer also admitted that Hunter acted as a foreign lobbyist. Well, that's also a crime under the Foreign Agents Registration Act, otherwise known as FERA. You'll recall that former Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort was prosecuted under the same FARA law for accepting money from, wait for it, Ukraine. And Manafort went to prison. But Hunter and Joe, ah, oh, they get a free pass thanks to Merrick Garland's corrupted Department of Justice. The Bidens worked similar schemes involving China, Romania, Kazakhstan, and Russia. These, by the way, are the very same countries over which Joe Biden as vice president ran foreign policy during the Obama administration. Now, is that a coincidence? Hardly. The Biden family syndicate banked tens of millions of dollars. They appear to have operated as a criminal enterprise under racketeering criminal laws. Equally incriminating are the encrypted messages recently uncovered in one of them. Hunter is obviously shaking down the Chinese Communist Party-linked company CEFC for cold, hard cash. Quote, I'm sitting here with my father, and we would like to understand why the commitment made has not been fulfilled. I will make certain that between the man sitting next to me and every person he knows— and my ability to forever hold a grudge that you will regret not following my direction. I am sitting here waiting for the call with my father. End of quote. That was the encrypted message. 
It was a not-so-veiled threat, and it worked like a charm. Days later, $5 million was wired to an account controlled by Hunter Biden. Five million bucks. But hey, that's not all. Some $3.5 million was wired to another account from Russian oligarch Yelena Baterina, who she, well, she's the one who attended a dinner at the ritzy Cafe Milano in Georgetown organized by Hunter. Joe Biden flax have long denied that the vice president joined the dinner. But guess what? Archer confirmed that the vice president, Joe Biden, was there, exposing yet another Biden lie. And isn't it curious that Batarina was conveniently left off Joe's list of sanctioned oligarchs when Russia invaded Ukraine? So where did all the payola go? Well, the House Oversight Committee is tracking it down. So far, they have determined that substantial sums of money were funneled through a complex web of shell companies and LLCs. Some of it eventually landed in the greedy hands of Biden family members. But if those accounts were used as they appear to have been used, to disguise the source of the money, that would constitute crimes of money laundering. But it's also tax evasion and fraud. Two IRS whistleblowers told the committee that Hunter failed to pay taxes on $8.3 million in income. All of this was ignored by Merrick Garland's Justice Department. He refused repeated demands by Congress to appoint a special counsel, which is required under federal regulations. Instead, Garland ensured that Hunter receives special treatment in a lenient plea deal that overlooked the vast majority of the crimes committed. The whistleblowers testified in detail about the political influence that scuttled much of their investigation. Make no mistake, Garland interfered to protect Joe Biden because there is a plethora of incriminating evidence that implicates the president as complicit in his son's illegality. As Garland ran his protection racket for the Bidens, he went after his boss's political opponent with vengeance. Did Joe instruct his AG to indict Trump for the January 6th violence at the Capitol? He didn't have to. The president told his aides that Trump should be prosecuted, and he expressed frustration over his attorney general's indecisive action. That was then deliberately leaked to the New York Times which published it. I'm pretty sure that Merrick Garland reads the leading newspapers. But that's how corruption works in Washington. Instructions that would otherwise be an improper abuse of power are messaged through proxies. Joe Biden didn't have to telegraph his witnesses to the sycophants he appointed at the DOJ. No, Garland and his prosecutors were more than happy to do Joe's bidding. That's why the Attorney General selected Jack Smith as special counsel. He has an abysmal track record 
of bringing politically motivated prosecutions by bastardizing the law. The January 6th indictment is yet another example. For the first time in American jurisprudence, Smith is making it a crime for a politician to utter false claims and then act on those claims in a government function, to wit, an election. Well, if that's the new legal standard, just about everybody in Washington belongs behind bars because lying is endemic in our nation's capital. Some examples. All right, here you go. James Comey lied to the FISA court to obtain a warrant to spy on a Trump associate. Was the disgraced FBI director ever prosecuted? Of course not. Hillary Clinton invented and funded the Russian collusion lie, conspired with others to defraud the FBI with a phony dossier to smear Trump. But Hillary was never indicted. The political landscape is littered with government actions based on false claims or lies, including Joe Biden himself. Biden lied about his authority to erase a half a billion in student debt, having first admitted he had no such power. The political landscape is littered with government actions based on false claims or lies, including those by Joe Biden. For example, he lied about his authority to erase a half a trillion in student debt, having first admitted he had no such power. The same with his COVID mandates. Both executive orders were overturned by the U.S. Supreme Court. In bringing his Trump indictment, Jack Smith is leveling the same criminal charges that the Supreme Court has already invalidated. In the seminal case of U.S. versus Alvarez, an elected official in California lied about his military service and awards for heroism. Prosecutors sought to criminalize his lies. His conviction, though, was overturned because the high court ruled that false claims are protected speech under the First Amendment. Invoking the historic counter-speech doctrine, the justices reminded government prosecutors that the proper remedy for lies is the truth, not a criminal indictment. Even the special counsel admitted in his indictment, that knowingly false statements are constitutionally protected speech. But then he performed this magical pirouette by asserting that it's nevertheless criminal if it was done to obstruct an election result. He then states that a variety of people told Trump that he lost. So what? Joe Biden listened to a host of legal experts who told him he couldn't unilaterally forgive student debt, and that Congress had only that authority. But listening is not believing. If Donald Trump truly believed that he won, even if he was wrong or even if it was irrational, how has he committed fraud by challenging the certification of electors, which is permitted under both the U.S. Constitution and the Electoral Count Act regardless of what he believes. After all, Democrats pulled the exact same maneuver by contesting Trump certifications in 2017 in favor of Hillary Clinton. 
They also did it in 2001 and 2005 in an attempt to overturn the election of George W. Bush. Even if Trump relied on erroneous legal advice, he is allowed to exercise challenges provided by law. Nor is it a crime, as Special Counsel Smith seems to think, for a candidate to claim that the election was stolen or rigged. Hillary Clinton, Nancy Pelosi said the same thing four years earlier, as they tacitly approved the effort by their supporters in Congress to mount a meritless and fruitless bid to reverse the outcome. If Democrats do it, it's a legal right. If Donald Trump does it, oh, it's a crime. Let's suppose, for the sake of argument, that it could be shown through witnesses that Trump privately conceded he lost the election, but nevertheless asserted otherwise publicly. Well, prosecutors still cannot circumvent the U.S. Supreme Court decision in Alvarez, where the defendant's lies were indisputable. Free speech, not just truthful speech, is protected by the Constitution. And yet the special counsel has now decided to set himself up as a one-man truth squad. It's censorship under the guise of criminal threats. His contorted legal theory will not stand up to legal scrutiny against the inevitable challenges in the courts. It's a blatant abuse of power. But Merrick Garland and Jack Smith don't give a damn. They just want to damage Trump to help Joe Biden win re-election. Joining me now to talk about it is my friend David Schoen, who is one of the finest trial lawyers I know, a veteran civil rights attorney. Uh, you may recall he defended uh, Donald Trump in one of his impeachments. Uh, you know, David, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. I, I you know, I have gone over and over this four-count indictment uh, against Trump over January 6th. Um, it, it's obvious that he couldn't bring a case against Trump for incitement of violence or, uh, you know, a seditious conspiracy, insurrection, and so forth, because uh, his speech, protected by the First Amendment at the National Mall, um, did just the opposite. It it urged uh, his supporters to behave peacefully. Uh, and, and so it strikes me that what this special counsel, Jack Smith, did is he went to the law library and he rolled up his sleeves and he started going through the uh, U.S. criminal codes. We've got to find something, anything. And so he comes up with these counts that I think are an enormous stretch under the law and constitution. I call it a Gumby indictment. Um, and he has stretched the law and constitution beyond all recognition. What say you? Well, I agree with everything you said, but I don't know how you knew that uh, President Trump's speech included peacefully or patriotically, because when I read the indictment, <laughs> he excerpted that speech, but he seemed to have left that part out, which I think is emblematic of the way Jack Smith and his team of prosecutors approach. Isn't that things. a lie by omission, as Harvard Law Professor oh, uh, Dershowitz has pointed out? You got the special counsel who's lying uh, in a government function. Uh, and as Dershowitz said, I'm not advocating that Jack Smith 
be prosecuted. But under the standard he sets in his indictment, Jack Smith should be indicted. Right. The thing that I, I find most interesting, I suppose, is that Jack Smith and a lot of his team come from a division uh, euphemistically called the public integrity section. <laughs> I can't think of anything more poorly named than that section, given some of these people. And by the way, two of the prosecutors, two lead prosecutors on the case, J.P. Cooney and Molly Gaston, come from that division. I have right now a sanctions motion pending before Judge Nichols asking for a hearing based on their outrageous misconduct in another case in which Judge Nichols has said he's very concerned about the misconduct and he's even more concerned that they don't seem concerned about it. So that's, you know, why on earth would you pick prosecutors with this kind of background? Same thing, a prosecutor in the Florida case, Karen Gilbert, exoriated by a judge down there for her misconduct. Um, You know, we saw that in the Mueller commission, which you reported on better than anybody else in the country. Um, I, I don't understand the whole thing, but you're right. Back to your point. Yes, the I agree 100 percent. The indictment is ill-conceived, um, makes no sense, should never have been charged as a criminal case. Yeah, I mean, these four counts uh, defy what the Supreme Court ruled in the seminal case of U.S. versus Alvarez, uh, 2012, the Stolen Valor case. And the high court said, you may not like it. But false claims are protected speech under the First Amendment. And the proper remedy, said the court, is not to criminalize it, not to prosecute people over lies and and false claims, but countering that with truthful claims. It's It's the old, long established counter speech doctrine at work. And yet the special counsel and Merrick Garland are simply ignoring the dictates of the U.S. Supreme Court. What do you think? Well, you're right, 100%. Listen, I think Alvarez is kind of the worst-case scenario fallback position here because I believe President Trump believed that everything he said was absolutely true in the first place. But I I think it's very important you make the point about Alvarez, and I would commend your column to everybody listening to this in which you discuss this. But um, the other part of Alvarez was – that not only is it the marketplace of ideas that really uh, run, drives our system of free speech, but that actually in that case and in this case, the underlying facts heighten greater awareness of the civic process here and so on. It gets people talking. So I'll give you an example. You know, a lot of the, the indictment in this case talks about pressure brought on Vice President Pence and so on under the Electoral Count Act. One of the leading election law experts in the country, and certainly no fan of Donald Trump, has said repeatedly that anyone who tells you they understand the constitutional role of the vice president under the Electoral Act or the 12th (laughs) Amendment is absolutely wrong. This is one of the leading election law experts. So for people to to criminalize a suggestion that... um, that maybe votes shouldn't have been certified because we should investigate improprieties and so on. You know, that it's crazy to criminalize that kind of conduct when no one could have due process notice of what the illegal conduct would be. And by the way, some would suggest that under Article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution, the take care that the laws be faithfully executed provision, which comes in the same section of the Constitution as the rules about how to elect the president, that a president of the United States, if confronted with 
uh, improprieties and given evidence by lawyers and otherwise that there were improprieties and irregularities in the election, had an obligation to take action yeah. um, regarding that election. So we don't criminalize this kind of conduct. It may demand important discussions, maybe legislative discussions and so on. We don't criminalize. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, the Electoral Count Act of 1887, right? So 150 years ago is absolutely the model for vagueness, ambiguity, confusion, <laughs> contradiction. And, you, you know, if there's a problem here, it's the Electoral Count Act. Fix it. And in fact, there is legislation currently pending to fix it. So we don't get into this mess in the next uh, several presidential elections. But look, it's not a crime to challenge the certification of electors on January 6th. Always happens six days uh, after the first of the year. It is permitted, not just under the Constitution, uh, but under the act itself, which Democrats exploited to do the exact same thing. They challenged electors to Republican presidents in 2001, 2005, George W. Bush. And in fact, Jamie Raskin and a host of Democrats with the support of Hillary Clinton did it in 2017 to try to overturn the Trump election in favor of Hillary Clinton. So so let me get this straight, David. It's fine for Democrats to do it, but not fine for Republicans. And then it's a crime. Yeah. No, it's, it's really the hypocrisy surrounding this issue. This is one of the points, you know, I made during the impeachment trial is so clear on a number of issues. You know, again, the speech they excerpt with fight like hell. So we played a piece in there with every single Democratic member of the Senate calling on people to fight and fight like hell or something like that. And now when Donald Trump says it, oh, it must mean something violent. But when they said it or Chuck Schumer says it, it doesn't mean something violent. So same thing here, you know, uh, challenging electors, challenging uh, the uh, integrity of an election. They also said, you know, for example, one of the House managers said during the impeachment trial, can you imagine an American ever saying the only way someone lost an election is if it were stolen? And so I played a piece of Senator Sherrod Brown. I said, "Here." and so Sherrod Brown said, the only way Stacey Abrams could possibly have lost this election is if it were stolen. And I turned to the House manager, Congressman, whatever his name was, and I said, now we don't have to imagine. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's crazy. It, it, it was a brilliant piece of lawyering. I recall it vividly. And the, the fight montage. I think uh, Elizabeth <laughs> Warren said it something like uh, 50 times. And Kamala Harris, right. uh, apparently addicted to the word fight, used it more than 75 times. I mean, it was brilliant, brilliant <laughs> stuff. Um, look, it's not a crime to say that the election is stolen or the election was rigged. Uh, you'll recall that Hillary Clinton and Nancy Pelosi made the same claim four years earlier. Uh, but, you know, as you read this indictment, you know, Jack Smith, ah, it's a crime, crime to say that uh, because he didn't believe it because a bunch of people told him it wasn't true. Well, so what if a bunch of people, so what if Bill Barr walks into the Oval Office and says, Mr. President, uh, you lost the election? Well, who gives a damn? It is what the speaker believes, and the speaker was Donald Trump. And they may put a bunch of witnesses up there. Well, during discussions, he sort of conceded that he might have actually lost the election. Uh, well, so what? He could change his mind. 
And regardless, he is still allowed, regardless of what he thinks about whether he won or not, he's still allowed to exercise the legal avenues that both the Constitution and the Electoral Count Act allow. Would you agree? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I'll say two things to that. One, um, I can tell you 100 percent uh, from every conversation I've had with him for the last couple of years through last week that Donald Trump believes 100 percent that he won the election, that the election was stolen from him and that he had and there was election fraud and that he had an obligation to stand up for the 75 plus million voters who voted for him. That's his belief. And he's entitled to it. He didn't just pull it out of thin air. You know, I, I've seen Bernie Carrick recently even uh, acknowledging that he, at the behest of Rudy Giuliani, provided President Trump with reams and reams of documents after thorough investigations that supported the position that he, Bernie Carrick says, any reasonable p- person who reviewed those documents would have had to have come to the conclusion that there was election fraud. Now, we may believe that, not believe it or otherwise. Donald Trump believed it and believes it today. That's number one. Point number two is, which I really think here is a terrible thing. This case could be a great civic lesson, but we see commentators, Bill Barr, Jamie Raskin, this uh, Ms. Perry, a former prosecutor, saying things like, well, he can say whatever he wants, but we're talking here about conduct and conduct isn't prevent- protected by the First Amendment. That's just a lie. Right. Of course, conduct, is especially politically motivated conduct, is protected by the First Amendment. I've done one after another case for the ACLU uh, litigating the rights of people under the First Amendment regarding their conduct. Right. No, I mean, it, I, I keep uh, seeing and hearing the same thing, and I'm baffled by it. Like, have you guys never read any of the U.S. Supreme Court decisions interpreting the First Amendment? Of course, conduct is is covered under free speech provisions in the First Amendment. I, I It's mind-boggling. Um, let's talk about the trial itself. Um I am sure that a bunch of pretrial motions are going to be made. There's one for a change of venue. There'll be one to recuse the judge. Um, those, those will not succeed in my judgment. This, this particular federal judge appointed by Obama has made it abundantly clear she ain't going to move anybody's venue related to January 6th. She handled some previous J6 uh, cases and outright denied it. Um, I think, frankly, it should go to a place like West Virginia, where there's more of a balanced jury pool uh, politically. You cannot get a fair trial in Washington, D.C. if your name is Trump or you're connected to Trump, uh, because that is such a uh, a biased venue. Ninety five percent of the people voted against Donald Trump. They loathe him. They hate him. Uh, we've seen it in other politically charged cases where you can't really get a fair trial. The jury is biased. So, but I think those are going to fail. What do you think? I think they'll fail. And in, in a fair world, the venue motion would pass and would be granted. And there is a specific basis for recusal for her. I happen to have a case in front of Judge Chutkin now. She's been very fair in my case, ruled in my client's favor. The, a big firm handled the appeal on our side and unfortunately lost it. But it's back before. It's been pending now a couple of years. She's been very fair in there, but it's not a Trump-related case. With respect to Donald Trump, I think the 455, the um, appearance of partiality basis recusal is clear, not just from her line about presidents aren't kings and Donald Trump is not president, but more specifically, the line she used when she sentenced the January 6th 
defendant. And she said that she knew that he wasn't acting out of some other uh, motivation. She was acting for one man, and that was Donald Trump. When you make a finding like that already that's directly relevant to the facts underlying the allegations in the case, uh, uh, any in any fair circumstance, and especially in a high-profile case, you should yourself decide the perception here of my potential bias is too great. This should go to another judge who's never made such comments. Now, that might be difficult in that district. You have so many judges who have made so many inappropriate, yeah. gratuitous, um, extraneous comments about Donald Trump, and then this supposed show of force in the courtroom with Judge Amy Berman Jackson showing up along with others during the arraignment. It's really unprecedented and sends a horrible, horrible message of bullyism. All right. So let's assume the trial judge um, denies both motions. Uh, would the defense then uh, immediately file appeals on, on venue as well as recusal? I think on the recusal, they could. They would have to file a mandamus petition uh, right away. Um, I don't know that that's going to go anyplace, but there is a real issue there. I think that the what you're going to see here is, you know, we know that the protective order motion from the government is pending. They uh, have proposed a protective order that they say was used by Judge Nichols in another case. That's my case. That um, pro- pro- that proposed uh, protective order was not on agreement. I disagreed with it, and Judge Nichols noted my objections to it. But it's, it's you know it's not the most severe. I'm in, I'm just I don't favor protective orders, especially in cases of great public interest. I believe there should be the public dissemination of all of the evidence. Now I don't think you should you know produce social security numbers and bank records right. publicly with identifying information. That's crazy. But I do think the underlying information that they would seek to have not disclosed uh, under their protective order is wrong. But I think what you're going to see now is a motion for a gag order. Um, and I think a, a broad one. And I think that you're going to see motions in limine by the government to bar defenses. And I think you're going to see motions by the government to use the statements by this Mr. Lauro as party admissions. He's been all over the news, uh, all over the media since Thursday, Friday and over the weekend. Uh, in my view, at least, um, someone who cares a great deal about seeing, you know, uh, the integrity of the system. And, you know, Donald client, uh, Donald Trump was a client of mine. Um, in his interest, I can't imagine why this fellow Loro is on the airwaves, putting Donald Trump into acts that he says he did, thoughts that he says he had, and so on. That's the government's burden. Right, right. We don't know yet what all of the defense theories are going to be. And to put a, a, a client in a box like this is crazy. And the other comments just don't make any sense. Things like, you know, if he violated some technical part of the Constitution or a statute, that's not a crime. He didn't violate any part of the Constitution or a statute, and it certainly shouldn't be the defense conceding that he might have, but that it's right. not a crime. He's standing behind the Constitution in this yeah. case. Anyway, I agree with you 100%. about those kinds of motions. I, I agree with you. I think it was ill-considered for Laura to do that. And I'm always reticent to criticize, you know, a fellow defense attorney. But look, as to the protective order, or even a gag order that may be forthcoming, um, to me, those things in, are a violation of the First Amendment right to speak freely and for an accused to defend himself. So in other words, you know, it's OK for Jack Smith, a special counsel, to publicly condemn Trump in his indictment and then following it up with a splashy news conference in which he all but convicts. Uh, Trump in the court of public opinion. 
but now the accused cannot respond in kind? I mean, how would any defendant feel if he or she is muzzled by prosecutors over charges that, you know, the accused believes are unmerited and unfounded? Uh, but, you know, I, I see this as very consistent with how Merrick Garland and the DOJ operate. Uh, they don't want the public or the press to hear any exculpatory or relevant evidence. They only want the public to see uh, the things that they've cherry picked that are supposedly incriminating. Uh, and there's nothing classified or sensitive in the January 6th case against Trump. Doesn't the public have a right to hear from both sides? Absolutely. That's the problem. You've really hit it on the head. This kind of long speaking indictment. Jack Smith gets to put out before the American people, the, the world, um, and everybody can make a copy of it and keep a copy of it, uh, unproven allegations by witnesses who have never had their credibility challenged. They appear before a grand jury or uh, without any kind of cross-examination, that sort of thing, in a one-sided presentation. And so people have those things to take as fact. And now you move for a protective order or a gag and or a gag order. Um, and D.C. also has a very stringent local rule on attorney comments on uh, in cases. And, and it's completely unfair. So you're left for the, however long it takes to get to trial in this case with all of those statements out there and the inability to respond. What I did have done in another case in that district is, you know, once Merrick Garland made a comment that in his in the other case, this is ref, reflects the equal application of the law. I believe that that was an opening for me to comment on everything in the case to point out why everything wasn't an equal application of the law. And I think the same goes here. You must be permitted to respond to the allegations publicly, the same kind of public way that the indictment was uh, issued and the press conference by Mr. Smith. Um, as I mentioned at the uh, top of my remarks, I, you know, I think Joe Biden has corrupted our system of justice. Um his lackey, as I refer to him, Merrick Garland, the attorney general, um, has been running a protection racket for Hunter and Joe Biden. Uh, he had to do a sweetheart plea deal uh, because to allow real prosecution on felonies to go forward would implicate, uh, you know, the, the uh, son's father, who is president of the United States and Merrick Garland's boss. That's exactly why. He refused consistently the repeated demands in writing by members of Congress to appoint a special counsel, which I might add under the federal regulations is required under these circumstances. He has no choice. And yet he simply rejected it out of hand. So in, in addition to running a protection racket for his boss, Joe Biden, uh, it seems to me that he is trying to interfere in the forthcoming presidential election by knocking out his boss's chief political opponent, Donald Trump. I mean, I I think that's the only way to view these sets of scenarios in an honest way. Yeah, I mean, and the timing is another factor, of course. How is it that two, it took two and a half years to bring this case? All of the cases come up during the same period, during the election time, at the same time when the Hunter Biden investigation finally has gotten underway and all of that. For me, at least, you know, Attorney General Garland is probably the biggest disappointment in the government because he had the most potential. I happen to have thought he was a great judge. I had a case with him. He couldn't have been more fair on the Court of Appeals. 
I think here, I, I honestly believe Lisa Monaco, the number two in the Justice Department, is behind much of this stuff. She's an acolyte of Andrew Weissman and, uh, you know, Andrew Weissman and others, uh, Norm Eisen, have written these model prosecution memos on number of occasions here before these indictments came out. I believe they have a direct pipeline to Lisa Monaco, even though she didn't take all of the suggestions in them. But Merrick Garland has an obligation to stand up for that, to go down in history, not as a guy who really was a part of that rig deck, but someone who stood up to it and said, no, 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 the integrity of the process and the constitution and our country demand more than this. We're going to be um, fair referees. We're not going to be people with our thumbs on the scale it's it, it's just outrageous. We don't have a person like the attorney general taking a stake in an election. Um, and I think here, you know, obviously, as you say, their agenda is to pile so much on Trump that he's either finally takes himself out of the race, which I don't think will happen, or the Repu- other Republicans start to say this is such a distraction now, and they start to pile on with that. I think obviously so far the response has been exactly the opposite. Um, I think it's – and when the Georgia indictment comes out, which I think is imminent – I think it's really going to be seen as piling on. I don't know if, if any lawyer could name a client who had four indictments <laughs> pending this kind of nature at one time, uh, any place. It just looks bizarre. It looks like a political agenda. And you see President Trump soaring in the polls because yeah, of it. Because American people are smart. They see this for what it is. The Bragg indictment is is ludicrous. I think the Fannie Willis, uh, Georgia indictment that may be forthcoming is equally absurd. Taking a snippet of a conversation that Trump had, uh, with the Secretary of State and, and contorting it, uh, in a way that is somehow a violation of the law when what he was really asking for was, uh, a recalculation, an audit, uh, a recount in Georgia, which he's entitled to do. Any, Losing a candidate is entitled to do that. But my last question is, I think the reason Trump's poll numbers continue to go up is because the American public is very smart. They recognize the corruption in Biden's Department of Justice, unequal application of law, the two-tiered system of justice, and they're sick to their stomachs over it. And they see Trump not as a villain, but a victim of that Department of Justice corruption to protect and help Joe Biden. You agree? I agree with that. And I also agree that they are now seeing Donald Trump's policies in contrast to sort of the state of the country, meaning the economy and all the other kind of important issues. And I think that seems attractive to them. Yeah. I mean, you you know, they propped him up by hiding him in the basement uh, during the 2020 election, knowing full well that he is of feeble mind and body, and and they got away with it, and they're going to try to do it again, but they're compounding it by going after uh, Donald Trump uh, with prosecutions that are just not supported uh, by the law. I want to say many thanks to my friend and one of the finest trial lawyers in America, David Schoen. Um, keep up the great work. Come back again soon, if you would. Anytime you keep up the great work, it's very important that everybody reads what you write and listens to what you say. Thank you very much for having me. That's David Schoen, a civil rights attorney and a veteran trial lawyer, defended Donald Trump in the second impeachment. And that's The Brief. Thanks for listening, everyone.